Section 27 of The Perfect World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Blakely, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Perfect World by Ella Scrimsour. Section 27. Allen, the Knight Errant. As Allen leapt over the bulwarks, his quick eye caught sight of footmarks, two going one way and two the other, with perhaps five feet between them. So, said he grimly to himself, they were carrying her between them, poor little Clory. The tracks were easy to follow. They led down to the sea and along the seashore. Steadily they went on, and Allen followed dauntlessly. There was no attempt made to cover their traces. On they went, carrying their burden between them. They had about ten hours' start, and although night was falling, Allen continued at his self-imposed task. Darker and darker it grew, until at length it was impossible to see the footmarks, so he sat down hopelessly to wait for dawn. The night was chilly, and the rain poured down, so Allen was soaked to the skin, and shivered violently as the gray dawn rose. The rain had almost obliterated the marks, but they showed up faintly here and there on the wet sand. He had no time to look at the scenery through which he was passing. His one thought was Clory, not the princess, but Clory the woman, Clory his love. On, on, he went all day, and still the footprints showed here and there. Night came, and again he was forced to rest and wait for the light. He was colder than ever, he shivered violently, and longed for the warmth of the sun. That night he never slept at all, and he rose in the early morning light, stiff and tired. His head felt light, his limbs ached, and the one thing he could think of coherently was Clory. Suddenly, all traces of the marks vanished. He hunted high and low, but all to no purpose. They ended as abruptly as if the pursued had been snatched up into the heavens. Two nights and two days he wandered to and fro. He was chilled to the bone and was in a high fever. At last he had to give in and lay under the shelter of a tree. The warmth of the sun revived him, and he crawled weakly to a bush on which grew luscious plums, ate his fill, and slept. When he awoke he felt better and stronger. Perhaps he had been dreaming. The footprints must go on. But no. They came to an end at a grassy edge, and there was no mark to show that human beings had passed that way. He spent that day hunting for a sign of the fugitives, but was unsuccessful and wearily retraced his way to the airbird. The scenery was beautiful. The island rose to a chain of peaks in the center, and beautiful passes and wooded valleys led through the mountains to the further side. The vegetation was purely tropical. Palms breast-high grew to the edge of the seashore, the undergrowth showed no sign of any animal inhabitants. Not a twig was broken, not a leaf trampled upon, to mark the passage of a foreign body. Alan made the return journey quickly, and soon found himself at the edge of the bush. But the Clory had gone. There were the signs of where she had rested, the mark on the sand of her wheels, an oily patch on the ground showing where her engines had been lubricated. But all sign of her had vanished. Had Wazi Keshta failed him? Or had Clory returned? He felt in his pockets. There was a scrap of paper and a pencil. I'm going inland, he wrote. If you come back, search for me. Allen. He pegged it to the ground close to where the Clory had been anchored, and turning his face westwards, retraced his footsteps. Time passed without his reckoning. When the nights came, he lived for the day, and in the daytime he dreaded the coming of the night. He reached the place where the footsteps ceased at dusk and for the first time for days slept through the night peacefully. His fever had abated, but he still felt curiously weak. 
yet his brain was clear, and he set to work again to hunt carefully for the missing ones. Yard by yard he worked, and at last his patience was rewarded. There, on a bush low on the ground, he saw a piece of something blue that fluttered on the breeze. He stooped and picked it off the twig. It was blue silk, and with a thrill he recognized it as a piece of Clory's dress. Feverishly he looked around him. Alas, there was no other piece to act as a further guide. A thought came to him, and he lay flat on the ground and peered under the bush. There a grassy avenue unfolded itself before his wondering gaze. It had been completely hidden by the dense woody undergrowth, so it was under this bush they had made their escape, and it was probably in dragging the unconscious girl through that her dress was torn. Alan wormed his way under the bushes, and gasped in wonder at the vista opened out before him. A straight avenue, bordered on either side by thick bushes and overhanging trees, ran perhaps two miles in a straight line. The grass underfoot was soft and velvety, and a narrow streamlet ran over white stones at one side. The bushes were laden with fruit, but even a cursory glance showed that a quantity had been picked quite recently. Twigs bearing fruit had been roughly broken off and trampled underfoot. On went Alan until he reached the end of the avenue, where four paths branched out in four different directions. He hesitated for a second. All four looked like virgin ground, but his eyes were quickened by love, and only love could have noticed a small patch of damp earth close to the water's edge, from where a stone had been kicked aside in a hasty transit. He looked round and saw the stone, its underside still damp, and knew that the fugitives were not too far off. Down the path he went, which twisted and turned, now narrow, now wide again. Suddenly the path also came to an end and thick bushes and low-growing vegetation barred his way. Profiting by his past experience, he tried to peer under the bushes, but could find no sign of an outlet anywhere. All at once there came the sound of voices so close that he turned quickly, expecting to see figures behind him. But there was no one in sight. He listened intently. The voices came again. The Chimernian tongue, which he could understand quite well by this time. We'll leave you here. Spare me, I beg leave you here. Clomervin, have mercy, mercy. It was all very disjointed, and the sounds seemed to come from every direction. Again he heard his loved one's voice, distorted it is true, but even in the hoarse tones he recognized that it was Clory speaking. Get away, help me. Wyko, help. My father will reward. Wyko. The voice trailed off. Alan was frankly puzzled. The voice came first behind, then before him. Then it seemed to come from heaven itself. A hoarse laugh sounded, Clomervin's. Alan was on the near track at last. Again the maniacal laugh came, fading away in the distance. Alan realized the trick nature had played him. He was listening not to the tones of his loved one or her abductor, but to an echo. The originals might still be many miles away. Madly, he tried to force his way through the undergrowth. It was impossible. All night long he stayed in the little cul-de-sac, and at intervals caught fragments of conversation. Prevent her escaping. Torture her if need be. Love me, Clory. Just love me. Save me, Wyko. Keep you with me always. The madness indeed possessed Colmervin and his friend. When the sun rose, Alan made one more attempt to leave the enclosure. Crawling on his belly, he wormed his way round the roots of the bushes. At last he discovered an opening. He crept through it, low upon the ground. When he got through, a network of pathways confronted him, but it was quite easy to discover the pathway Colmervin had taken. Feeling secure in his flight, he now refrained from attempting to cover his tracks. By the broken grass and branches, the general upheaval of the soil, 
Alan was convinced that through this part of their retreat they had dragged their unwilling victim along the path, so he ground his teeth and swore softly under his breath. Twisting and turning, the path opened out into a valley, a valley of rocks and stones between two mighty mountains. The scene was desolate, awe-inspiring, dreary, almost terrifying in its grandeur. For perhaps two miles he followed it, until again it narrowed and the character of the scene changed. Once more it was a leafy lane he was traversing that might have been in Devonshire, with its red earth and dainty ferns. At intervals during the day he heard the echo, and it led him on, on to his love. A sound came upon his ear. It was that of voices, real voices this time, no longer an echo. Cautiously he crept from tree to tree. There in the center of a clearing sat Culmervin. His robe was torn, his skin scratched. His eyes held a look of madness. At his feet stretched Wyko, listening eagerly to his friend's counsel, and tied to a tree, her fair hair covering her, her garments lying strewn on the ground beside her, torn from her body by her half-mad kinsman Culmervin, was Clory. Her head was sunk on her breast. She was breathing heavily. Alan dared not move. It was two against one, and he had to save himself for her. Silent as a sleuth-hound, he watched and waited, and even as he did so, Clory lifted her head and gazed across the bodies of the two Kimarnians. Through the leafy spaces their eyes met. Into hers came recognition, followed by a flush of shame, as she shook her hair closer still about her gleaming body. Then she smiled a trustful smile, and dropped her head once more upon her breast. End of section 27 Alan, the Knight Errant Recording by Beth Blakely